Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and find the end of that chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2. While you're finding that, kids, here's today's sermon. You can repeat silently uh, in your mind, in your heart after me, what you want drives what you do. What you want controls what you do. What you love leads to how you live. Your wanter, there's a, there's a mechanism inside of you. You can't see it. No x-ray can find it. You have a wanter, and that wanter drives your behavior. Whatever your heart deems as most supremely valuable, inevitably, that love flows out of your life. It flows into your mind, what you think about, your mouth, what you talk about, your eyes, your hands, your feet. All of your life becomes little tributaries of application that prove whatever your heart preeminently, first place, prizes, loves, treasures. To say it another way, our greatest love dictates the details of our life. I don't know if you've ever focused carefully enough on your heart through the lens of scripture to see something that's attached to it, but scripture would reveal, if you look carefully enough, that your heart actually has a tether, a rope or a chain, a tether that's attached to it. The lens of the Bible shows you yourself, and then it trains you for godliness. And what the Bible reveals about your heart is that tether is connected to something that is pulling you It is shaping you. It is dragging you along. It is molding you into its likeness, which, as no surprise, the Bible says very clearly, the greatest command of all the good commands of God is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart. If you love him most, he'll shape you into his likeness. Everything will flow out of that preeminent love to him. So to break that command, to not obey the greatest command, has to be the greatest sin. The greatest criminal activity that's ever happened in the universe is for anybody not to love God supremely. If he said that's the greatest command and we break that command, then that must necessarily mean that to not obey it is the greatest rebellion of all. Outward demonstrations are just symptoms of our innermost devotion. The form of our life is being poured into the mold of the focus of our heart. And this passage, the end of 2 Timothy 2, puts the motivation, what we want, the motivation for why we would want to live a certain way. It puts that motivation very clearly. The motive The the reason, the why for obedience to Jesus that's given in this passage is that God might be pleased to use our little life as a channel of his grace into the lives of other people. That's the motive. That's what Christians want. Put another way, this passage shows that the reason we must strive to live Christianly is so that people will not follow Satan but that more people would follow Jesus. The reason that we should seek to, as this passage says, gently correct other fellow Christians 
who are in opposition to God and his truth is because we want more people to, quote, repent. We want them to, quote, know the truth. We want them to, quote, come to their senses. We want them to, quote, avoid the snare of the devil. They don't know they're caught in his snare. They're not in their senses. They don't know the truth. They are, quote, being held captive by Satan to do his will. And so what do they need? They need God to act on their life. How does God want to do that? He wants you to want to be the channel that he uses for that. Your life is to be a channel of God's grace. That's the title of today's sermon. The passage is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 to 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. 2, 2, 2, 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard here the word of the Lord. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What a passage. Let's pray together again and ask for God's help. Lord, make us want what you want. Make us love what you love by revealing to us the all-surpassing beauty and sufficiency of Jesus. And I pray that every person here who is, according to your word, caught in the devil's trap, out of their senses, incorrect, needing to repent, being held captive by the devil to do his work, his will, set them free in Jesus today. Show everybody Jesus today. Do not let anybody make up our own Christianity. Do it our way. No, Lord, call us to yourself and to the deep and lasting satisfaction that only fellowship with Jesus can provide. Give us yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've already said this passage is designed to show us that our life is to be a, a, a channel, a pipeline. So God comes through us to others. We are to be a channel of the grace of God to those around us, particularly to those in our local church. This passage is written to a pastor of a church. But more specifically, the passage doesn't just tell us be a channel of God's grace. It tells us how and it tells us why. The why is at the end. And if you don't want this reason, you're actually one of the people that needs the correction. So let me just start with the conclusion. Do you want all the people around you to be set free from the shackles of Satan? Do you want less people doing his will? That's what the verse says in verse 26. Do you want more people to know God's truth? Do you want people to stop being distracted from Jesus 
using their Bible to do it, but instead to, quote, come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you want more people to have an aha moment? Oh, I've been focused on this. I should have been focused on him. Do you want more people to have that? Would you like it if more people repented like actually said, God, I'm sorry, and maybe to their brother and sister, I'm actually sorry to you as well because I'm, I've been like Hymenaeus and Philetus, distracting you from Christ in his church rather than pushing you toward him. Do you want that? If you don't want that, you're actually one of the people who needs somebody to be a channel of God's grace to you. And that's a huge problem in your life. The passage says you're blind, you haven't come to your senses. You're trapped and you don't know it. You're held in a snare. You're caught in it. You didn't catch yourself. He caught you. You're trapped. He caught you. You don't know it. And the Bible actually says in this passage, you are ignorant and speculative. The NIV says stupid. Guess what people who believe lies don't know they believe? The lies that they believe. Why do people believe lies? because they believe them. What do those people need? God. How has God designed to act upon them graciously? Not most of the time by a lightning bolt from heaven immediately zapping them into awareness because they would probably actually distort that too and take credit for it and be even more prideful. Instead, he humbles their pride by using another brother or sister as a conduit of his grace to their life. If you want to know the application, not only the conclusion, the conclusion is the why, but the application, I'll give it to you at the beginning as well. The application is, are you trying to make other people happy in Jesus? There's a how, there's a why. How to be a channel of God's grace, why to be a channel of God's grace. But it all assumes that Christ is in you. It all assumes Christ is in the person that you're seeking to minister to. This is Christian people here. It's quite possible for churches to lose their focus and for individuals in churches to lose their focus. That's why we need a church so that we're not left to our own devices and caught in our own trappings and stepping into the devil's snare. I'll give you another application just before I go in to try to unpack the how and the why. Like right now today, this season of your life, what is his name? What is her name? Who are they? Who are the people in your life today that can correct you? that can tell you you're wrong, that can tell you you're misguided, you're overemphasizing secondary things? Who can speak into your life? Not when you want them to, not about what you want them to, and not actually if you get to choose who they are. Who tells you you're wrong and it feels like they're giving you a Jesus hug? That's what this passage is about. The people doing the correcting are not actually against the people needing the correction. They're wearing the same uniform. They're on the same team. 
Everybody's wanting everybody to succeed. Take one step closer to Jesus. So I'm asking you again, that's the application. Who are they? Who will you listen to if they were to lovingly tell you, brother, you're wrong? I mean, the Bible uses the word correction. That's not a suggestion. And it actually says the people who receive it repent. Who are those people? Well, let's let the word do the work, the how to be a channel of God's grace, and then the why to be a channel of God's grace. I almost inverted it, but the passage gives it to us this way, so we're going to give it this way. How to be a channel of God's grace is verses 22 through the beginning of 25. So 22 through 25a, and then the why is 25b through 26. First, how to be a channel of God's grace. This is something that all Christians want. So again, if you don't want this, that's the motive at the end, the why, then you're one of the people who need people to do this for you. How to be a channel of God's grace, you have to run from and you have to run toward. Verse 22, flee this, pursue that. So number one is flee. Flee youthful lusts. Do you see it there? This is a command, it's an imperative, it's not a suggestion. Paul is commanding Timothy, do not go that direction. He's actually correcting Timothy. Timothy is receiving the grace of God through another brother called Paul, and he's receiving it. Then later in the passage, he's doing it. This is actually a beautiful picture of what we all are supposed to be. So number one, you flee God's grace, verse 22. That's the same word that's used in Acts chapter seven to describe what Moses and Israel did when they were running for their life from Pharaoh and his army who was trying to kill them. You run like somebody is trying to kill you. That's the flee. It's the same word that's used about the Lord Jesus Christ in his years of infancy when his parents fled to Egypt. Why? Because Herod was going to kill them. It's the same word that John the Baptist uses when he says, flee from the wrath of God that is coming for you. Just like Noah used to say, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. Everybody, everybody, listen, it's going to rain. It's going to flood. The whole earth is going to be covered. You can't swim far enough, fast enough. There's no land to get to if you could. The whole earth is going to be covered in water. John the Baptist picks up on that analogy and says, like that tsunami, God's wrath is on its way. Run, 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 run. Flee. Flee what? Flee youthful lusts. A godly person is someone who is not... Who, is, who, who, who does not have no fear. I was trying not to use a double negative. A, a godly person is not someone without fears. There we go, better, better grammar. A godly person has two great fears. A godly person fears God and fears sin. Because a life devoted to sin will not enter heavenly glory. I know that because Galatians 5 uses this same terminology to say people who engage in youthful lusts, quote, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Run, flee. 
If you're addicted to porn, that means if you ever, 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 ever look at it, you're addicted to it. It's killing you. Run, flee, cut off your arm, pluck out your eye. But that's not all of the youthful lust. To quote that Galatians passage, it's any immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, any sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, any dispute, dissension, faction, envying, drunkenness, carousing, anything like that. I warn you, just as I already forewarned you, that if you practice those things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Run from that. But Jesus told us a story about how if you take out one demon and you don't put anything in its place, coming back with seven more. So not only cleanse your life from this sin, fill your life. Run from that. Pursue this. That's the second one. Pursue. Verse 22. There are four things that Timothy is commanded to pursue. Again, these are imperatives. It's the exact opposite of flee. Leave that. Fill your life with this. Four words that summarize the Christ life that we are to strive for with all of our might. What should we pursue? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Do you see those? Well, those are Bible words. Let's just make sure we have a semblance of understanding of what Paul's talking about. Pursue righteousness. Go hard. Go violently. Go intentionally. Go aggressively after righteousness. He's not talking about positional righteousness. It's a theological category to talk about becoming a Christian. He is not talking about justification. He's not talking about being initially, ultimately, and eternally made right with God. He is not talking about conversion. He is not talking, as I said at the beginning, about positional righteousness, being made to be in Christ. When you turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus who died for your sin and rose again to save you. That's how to be made positionally righteous. He's not talking about that. He's talking about moral rectitude. He's talking about practical righteousness. He's talking about going after the moral behavior that corresponds to a life that belongs to Jesus. Pursue right living in God's sight, not on the basis of your own understanding, but in all of your ways, acknowledging him, a word-saturated life. Nobody's arrived at that. So we say, God, oh, I see in your word, I should be this, but I am that. I should love this, but I admire that. God, forgive me, change me. And over time, you're able to say by the work of the Holy Spirit, thank you, God, for making me a person who wants what you want and loves what you love. That's righteousness. Faith, Christian faith is most essentially confidence in God. Faith is not a thing that you give to God. Faith is actually something that God gives to you. And you will know if you have it if God alone is the object of it. One commentary said this faith is, quote, what Hebrews 11 is talking about, conviction of things not seen. It is an eye 
toward eternal things and to an eternal God. And that heart latch, that tether, so pulls you toward him that your whole life is shaped by him. Because as Hebrews 11 goes on to say, without faith it is impossible to please God. Timothy, forsake youthful lust. By the way, one commentary showed that lots of commentaries think that Timothy was probably in his late 30s, maybe early 40s when he got this. So youthful lust is not just teenagers whose hormones are turning on for the first time. It's all those ungodly virtues that chase us our whole life long. Forsake that, pursue righteousness, pursue faith. Without that, you can't please God. Pursue love. Do you see this? Number three is love. In context, this love is not only vertical. It's also horizontal. It's love that is focused on other people. As our faith latches on to Jesus, not sin, we forsake that, pursue him, then we begin to have this type of love. Yes, for him, but as the pillar commentary said, a growing affection for his people. Now, it's hard to measure Christian virtues. Like, are you more patient now than you were a year ago? Are you more gracious now than a year ago? It's hard to quantify that. But I would like to ask, even though it's hard to quantify, do you love God's people more today than you did a year ago or 10 years ago? Would they say that about you? Do you have a growing affection for the people of God? Well, I would, but you don't know the kind of people in my church. No. He, he put you around the right people because he's chasing your heart and he wants to shape you into his image. And oh, by the way, you weren't so lovely yourself when he started chasing you. And he wants you to be a channel of his love to others. Peace, one commentary said, is a genuine fellowship and harmony with other Christians. This is a person who's pursuing peace, not pursuing unrighteousness. So we can see in our first two considerations that a person who is useful to the Lord, that is a person who is a channel of the grace of God into the lives of other Christians, is somebody who's running from all that dishonors God, all the sin for which Jesus died. They don't hang on to the things that Jesus was mutilated for. Instead, they run toward God and this life of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Third, not only do they run from and run toward, but people who are channels of God's grace also call upon the Lord with people who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Do you see in verse 22, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart? That just imports all the four virtues. Like people who are pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace with all their might. With those people who call on the Lord from a pure heart, you pursue those things too. We've all seen the effect through documentaries or, God forbid, firsthand experience. We've all seen the effect on the lives of people who have limited social interactions with other people. They're underdeveloped. Their social muscles are atrophied. People who live isolated lives do not know how awkward they are 
in social circles. They don't have the categories to understand, maybe not any fault of their own, maybe somebody inflicted that isolation on them. Nonetheless, isolated people are socially limited. We're all socially limited. Yes, you're weird, I'm weird. We all have idiosyncrasies and oddities. That's just reality. But socially underdeveloped people are a really good illustration for what Paul's talking about. Pursue righteousness with all your heart. Go after faith in God, love for his people. Be a peacemaker with people who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Because you don't even know what that's supposed to look like if you're doing it in a vacuum. The Christian life is not a silo. We're a family. And we are to rub off on each other as he is our focus. Literally, we call on him. God, this would be a good thing to call on him with his people about. God, make us righteous. Make us faithful. Make us loving. Make us peaceful. We call on him with that heart. Christians are catapulted onto the bounty of Christ to the degree that we immerse our lives in a praying church. Because prayer is the sound of humility. Humility is simply saying, I need God. Prayer is the vehicle that God has given us to express our need. And Paul is commanding Timothy to imperative command, pursue Christian virtues congregationally with a church, with people who call on the Lord. This is their pastor. I love this. Paul is legit in scripture telling a pastor who he knows good and well is going to read the letter to his whole church, you can't have this by yourself. He's telling the pastor that he needs the people for him to experience the good and gracious virtues. More specifically than that, a praying church that prays in accord with God's word. Do you see that they pray, but they pray with a pure heart? A pure heart means they want what God wants. How do we know if we're praying things that God wants? Ah, we pray according to his word. We can be sure that when we take his word to his throne room, his heart is already inclined to say yes. We regularly seek his face together. So not only are we to turn from that and pursue this and call upon the Lord with his people, but if we want to be a channel of God's grace, number four, we have to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Verse 23, refuse them. Refuse them. I don't know what you hear when you hear that word but you know exactly what it means to refuse. Some people in the church at Ephesus were drunk with interpretive aberrations of scripture. At least two guys in the church were saying that the resurrection of Jesus had already taken place. Just skim back up to verse 18. They were the guys in the church who probably started a blog to share their insights. They might have taught Grace Kids rooted and grow and explain to people their connections in the Bible from this verse to that verse to their conclusion. But guess what? Paul said their speculations are, quote, foolish and ignorant. The NIV says, do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. 
because you know they produce quarrels. Now I need to say something as carefully as I can. I prayed for help to say this because so many of you have such good questions. So I need to say something carefully, Lord help me. It is not only okay, it is essential to ask questions about the Bible. That's good. You cannot grow in your faith if you don't ask questions. If your Bible does not raise questions for you when you read it, then you need to reread it. But it is not okay to move beyond questions to heretical conclusions. It is not okay to share a prayer request that is really gossip. Similarly, it is not okay to ask questions that you know in your heart are speculations. You're being passive aggressive. You're trying to educate God's people with all your fancy data through inquisition. That's not okay. If you are casting doubt on what is core to the Christian faith, then you're hooked. You're not doing the hooking. You have been hooked. You are in a trap. You are in a snare. And the one who said it, the passage says, is the devil. But if you're captured, not maybe by a heresy, something outside the bounds of the Christian faith, but a secondary doctrine that is cannibalizing your soul, and you're trying to get everybody else to talk about it all the time because that's your pet focus, God told his people not to talk to you. Literally, he said, refuse it. Not let me hear you out. Maybe that makes sense. Let me think about it. Just zoop. I'm not going to talk about that. That's ignorant. That's NIV. That, that's just stupid. I'm not mad at you. I'm sorry for you. That's, that's really foolish. Who talks to you like that? If you've never had an ignorant speculation, you have not had very many Christian conversations. Has anyone ever told you, that's really stupid? That's so ignorant, I'm not even going to talk to you about that. Well, Paul commanded Timothy to refuse those kind of conversations. And he told him to refuse them, I've separated it into two, because he knows something. People who are channels of God's grace refuse ignorant and speculative conversations because they know something. What do they know? Channels of God's grace know that those kind of conversations produce quarrels. Verse 23, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. Now again, this requires nuance because everybody should have questions about the Bible. And if you don't, as I said before, read it again. And sometimes a good old-fashioned debate between two friends that's not formal, or maybe even a formal debate, like let's put some chairs up here, you take that position, I'll take that position, y'all listen, let's try to work this out. Okay, maybe a good old-fashioned debate about the details can help us sort things out. But you've been on the internet enough to know that people can be wrong, wrong about what they are saying and win a debate. The question is not do you 
want to win the argument. The question is, do you want to win the person? Do you have the heart of Jesus? If you tiptoe into stupidity in spiritual conversations, shame on you because you know from the beginning it's just going to produce a quarrel. Proverbs 15, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Proverbs 17, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Proverbs 17, 19, he who loves transgression loves strife. Do you like to fight? Do you like to poke the bear? Do you like to be provocative in your Bible question asking? Proverbs 20, verse 3, keep away from strife, for that is an honor for a man, but a fool will quarrel. A godly person is not known as somebody who loves putting other people in their place with their spiritual zingers. That's satanic. He literally is an accuser of the brethren. Channels of God's grace don't appreciate that. Two more aspects of people who are channels of God's grace, and I've already given you our final point, the motive, which I'll just briefly reiterate. If you want to be a channel of God's grace, not only do you refuse those arguments because you know they produce quarrels, but you are kind. Verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Now, Paul's talking to Timothy as the pastor, but these qualities are characteristic of all Christians. Again, if you don't want this, it's because you're already caught in Satan's trap. You just don't know it. Kindness. Kindness is not a competency, it's a quality. It's not content of conversation, it's a character issue. Is he a good man? Does his disagreement with you smell like he is yoked to Jesus? That's bondservant. Bondservant is literally willing slave. Master says you can go free. Slave says free where? I'm not here because I'm forced to be. I'm here because I want to be. A bondservant is a volunteer slave. The Lord's bondservant, I'm happy to be a slave to Jesus. I'm not going anywhere. Set me free if you want to. I don't have freedom outside of slavery to you. Slavery to you is my freedom. The Lord's bondservant is kind. They prefer to be bound to Christ. And the fruit of that tetheredness to Jesus is kindness. Is that what people would say about you? He doesn't make a lot of sense, but man, he sure is kind. It's a portrait of a person who's been conquered by Jesus. This person knows that Jesus was right and they were wrong. But instead of Jesus bludgeoning them with how stupid we were, Jesus knew how wrong we were, and at the same time, he wooed us with his loving kindness. The old adage stands true, kill them with kindness. That's actually a Christian virtue, and it's a reflection of the heart of our king. That's how he came after us. Nobody became a Christian because they thought God hated them. And God's not sorry about telling you what is actually very loving to you. You're a helpless sinner headed for hell unless you turn and embrace the fullness of Jesus for your forgiveness. But when he says it to you and your eyes are opened, 
You couldn't possibly feel that he's more for you. He's so kind. Romans says, the kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. More people tell God they're sorry because they realize how kind he is. While we were sinners and hateful and enemies, God demonstrates his love for us in that Christ died for us. So not only is the Lord bondservant kind, but he's also able to teach, gently correcting those who are in opposition. This is interesting because a few phrases ago, Paul said, don't talk to them, refuse. And here he says, correct them. So which is it? Yes. Uh, Answer a fool in his folly? No. Unless it's time to answer a fool in his folly. So here we can see that a godly person does not avoid all discussions and topics that are controversial, but he does avoid tiptoeing into things that he knows will only produce a quarrel. At the same time, he is committed to God's word. Therefore, he's committed to teaching what God has expressed in his book, able to teach. This is a capacity and a competency that the man of God who's a channel of his grace and the sister in the Lord who's a channel of God's grace possesses. They are able to explain the Bible in a way that benefits the souls of others. But he knows it's not his oratory skill. It's not the organization of his notes that produces the change. If you guys only knew how badly I wanted to delete all these notes this morning because it sounds to me like gibberish, I think this point would make a lot more sense. We don't trust our organizational note-making or our oratory spokesmanship. Rather, channels of God's grace are committed to the teaching of God's word because we know the word does the work, just like it did in our heart. Therefore, he's gentle in his correction when he talks to those who are flat out wrong. Both people can't be right if you're both taking opposing views of something the Bible teaches. Somebody's wrong. Both people think they're right. The channel of God's grace person is able to be gentle. Why? Because they know it's not their argumentative skills that win anybody. It's the word of the Lord. Like Luther said about the Reformation, how did you do it? And he said, I didn't do anything. I preached and went to bed at night. I just let the lion out of the cage. The word did the work. Teaching and preaching the Bible is letting a lion loose upon the souls of men and women. We have no idea how much sleep they lose at night because we told them something true from scripture and God is chasing their heart through Holy Spirit conviction. Some may reject and war against this truth, but as we teach scripture gently, they can't change it. They can't make it go away. God's word is settled in heaven. That's what a Christian person does to be useful to the Lord, a channel of his grace. I've already told you the passage says why to do it. We have to close in just a couple of minutes because we have the joy of a covenant affirmation service and the blessing of gathering again around the Lord's table represents the gospel of Christ. So just a couple more minutes. Why should a person pursue all that? I mean, why should a person want to be a channel of God's grace? Because at least for three reasons, God will give repentance 
to other people through us. Isn't that amazing? Number two, other people will come to their senses and escape the devil's snare. And number three, they'll be set free, no longer held captive by Satan to do his will. A godly person knows that they didn't repent because they were smarter than everybody else. A godly person pain, is painfully aware that they're not better at anybody in avoiding lies. We're not out of Satan's trap because we were better at avoiding it. A godly person knows that they were brought to repentance monergistically. That means God did it all by himself. God gave us a gift, like I said, of faith earlier. He gave us the twin gift of repentance. You can't conjure repentance up. You can't manufacture or make real repentance. God has to give it to you, and godly people are happy for God to receive all the glory that God alone can do for the work that has happened in our life. God may grant them repentance is a portrait of what has already happened to the godly person. So when they teach and correct and they pray with the saints, there's trusting God will do the miracle in the hearts of their loved ones. While the other people are busy arguing and speculating, we trust God will move upon their heart through the power of his word. And verse 25b will happen to them. They will come to the knowledge of the truth. Second reason is that they would come to their senses and escape the devil's snare. This is that aha moment I said at the beginning. I don't know if you've had one of these lately, but many Christians have them many, many times in their life. It feels like conversion all over again. How could I have not known this about you, God? How could I have been wrong about that, God, and been a Christian at all? That's actually evidence that you are, that he's drawing you to himself, that he's showing you the error of your ways, that he keeps peeling the scales from your eyes and letting you see the fullness and sufficiency of Christ. That's evidence that you are saved, not that you just got saved. And it happens again and again. And yes, it does feel like true conversion. It feels like how could I have been so blind and yet belong to you at all? That's what's happening here. They come to their senses. You know that. You've seen that happen to other people spiritually and otherwise. It's, oh, ah, I was wrong. This is right. This person sees that they were wrong about their hyper-focus on anything other than Jesus. They were brought to their senses. It all makes sense now. They can discern that they were not only a doctrinal deviation, but they were pulling other people into the devil's trap. And if God grants them repentance, they will be the ones who say, man, the enemy had a hold on me. I thought I was devoted to this hobby horse doctrine because it was God honoring, but now I see I was actually drawing people away from him rather than toward him. And then finally they're free. They're no longer held captive by Satan to do his will. This is real freedom. You know, the Bible teaches that, you know, precious little Johnny and Susie, as precious as they are, are born under the devil's dominion. You know that the Bible teaches that all men and women are depraved and born sin-sick and hell-bound. So when we say this person was held captive by Satan, we're not saying something unique about them. We're saying 
That's true of everybody, unless God sets you free. But this is a professing Christian, and I think a genuine Christian, who's been momentarily imprisoned. But now they're no longer in Satan's trap. They're free in Christ. They join others in becoming a channel of God's grace. They now want to help other people be free from satanic bondage. When this person is brought to repentance, they see that the work they were doing in the name of Jesus was actually the work of the enemy. Verse 26 says, they were doing his will. They can see that they were encouraging Satan to take a day off because they were happy to do his job for him. And they're broken by that. And they don't want to be that kind of person. They're now riveted to Christ. Which one is you? Satanic bondage or Christ's freedom? Pushing others into his fullness. We should certainly check ourselves. So I close this way. The application is, can you just hear the passage backwards? What's your motive and what are you doing? I said your heart has a tether. This sermon's a perfect example of why everybody needs to be in a church for a long time. There's a lot of good churches, be in one for a long time. This is a good reason. You need people who know you enough to correct you. Who is that who does that for you? I've already said Paul's doing that for Timothy. Now Timothy's doing that for others. They're correcting. That's literally saying, don't do this, do that. Last week was a very hard sermon, and that's a reason that being in a church for a long time is so important. I, I believe even more strongly now that last week's passage is about avoiding certain people in the church who won't get off their doctrinal hobby horse that distracts you from Jesus. But avoid in Thessalonian language is admonish. It's not shun them, never talk to them, but it's only be willing to talk to them about things that are soul-nourishing, not soul-deflating. Who admonishes you? Who, who corrects you? Going backwards in the passage, it might sound like this. This is my best effort at Jordan verbiage application. I love you. God helping, I'm going to continue to love you. I pray for you often. I will continue praying for you. But your hyper-focus on this or that secondary doctrine is proving harmful to my soul. My, my faith wilts rather than flourishes when our conversations inevitably delve back into that arena. I want you to flourish in your love for Christ. I believe the whole Bible's about him. I believe that when he got up from the dead, he said that explicitly. Somehow or another, your influence on me gives me a lot of Bible and less Jesus. I don't know why, but I do know something less than Jesus-soaked is happening to my soul the more we delve into things that you're focused on. I guarantee you, Philetus should have said something like that to Hymenaeus. But they both just kept going down their path. Last Sunday, you avoid those people. 
I love you, I'm gonna pray for you, I'm admonishing you, but I will not follow you in that direction. I will not continue to go on that focus because it distracts me from Christ. This week, it's worse. Satan is the one trapping them. He does not want them to see 2 Corinthians 4, the glory of God in the face of Christ. People who are channels of God's grace want people to see what Satan doesn't want them to see. They want people to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So which are you? Who can correct you? Only people that you get to choose? Only when you allow it? Only on topics that you get to select? That, my friends, is dictionary definition of satanic deception. This passage actually shows us qualities of Christ. He's righteous, loving, peaceful, and kind. He's patient and gentle. He corrects his people constantly. His Holy Spirit sweetly convicts us when we're walking into the devil's traps. If your Jesus agrees with everything that you think, and agrees with everything that you believe, and affirms everything that you do, and your Jesus never disagrees with you, you need a new one. We're gonna sing in just a moment, my Jesus, I love thee. Let's make that our prayer. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who so sweetly and tenderly chases our heart shows us your glory, corrects us when we're wrong, continues to gently, lovingly teach us the truth. And thank you that he has been pleased most often not to do that directly, but indirectly through the lives of other Christians. So we all say to you now, yes, Lord, help me put people in my life that will help me know and love Jesus more. Put people in this church that will help us know and love Jesus more because that's the fruit of your love for us. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. To thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing this chorus.